This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from our homes via the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Anti-abortion groups are hoping to rewrite Wisconsin's 19th century abortion ban over the next year to match modern understandings of abortion. In particular, anti-abortion groups are hoping to clarify the legality of medical abortions and hope to prevent legal interpretations that could allow them. Abortion opponents also hope to close the exception for the health of the mother, claiming that the health of the fetus should be given equal care, according to the Associated Press. The law is unlikely to be rewritten prior to the state legislature reconvening in 2023. Former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman is facing yet another lawsuit for his handling of a probe into the state's 2020 presidential vote. This probe, authorized by Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss, has cost taxpayers more than a million dollars, according to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Now Gableman faces a new lawsuit after he admitted in another lawsuit to have deleted public records. This case is being brought by the liberal group American Oversight, and it asks that Gableman be stopped from deleting more public documents. In prior testimony, Gableman admitted to deleting a Yahoo.com email account he had used for the election probe, citing security concerns. A member of the Wisconsin Public Service Commission says there is a very low risk of rolling blackouts this summer. That comes after an energy grid watchdog group issued a report warning that there was a heightened risk of blackouts this summer in the Midwest. Ellen Nowak, the only Republican appointee on the Public Service Commission, said Wisconsin has plenty of excess energy capacity. Three of Wisconsin's largest coal-fired power plants postponed their planned retirement last week, reported the Wisconsin State Journal. Wisconsin's five largest utility companies have all pledged to be coal-free by 2040, but NOAC cautioned against eliminating any source of power generation. The Madison Plan Commission has unanimously approved the demolition of the 12-story building at 131 West Wilson Street. The building formerly housed the restaurant Paisans and had been ordered to close multiple times over the past year for failing to comply with city inspections. This building is partially owned by executive management, which had previously been found in contempt for failing to perform these inspections. An engineering consulting firm had advised the building be vacated in a report earlier this month, according to the State Journal. Paisans is still settling on a new site for the restaurant. The Madison Metropolitan School District approved a preliminary budget for 2022 to 2023 on Monday. The new budget contains a 3% wage increase for all staff, short of the 4.7% increase that the teachers' union was advocating for. The Madison Teachers' Union pointed out that the 3% increase in nominal income is actually a pay cut given the state of high inflation, reported the Capital Times. The decision was not unanimous, with school board member Nikki Vandermeulen calling the bonus proposal, quote, insulting. Currently, the state law puts revenue limits on how much money a school district can take in. Members of the school board called on community members to reach out to state legislators to expand the revenue limits on school, local school districts. And now on to today's top stories. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last week, the state of abortion access in Wisconsin has been up in the air. On the books, Wisconsin has an almost full ban on abortion, but is this 173-year-old law enforceable? Earlier today, Wisconsin Attorney General Josh Call filed a lawsuit arguing the ban is too old to be enforceable and is superseded by newer state laws. WORT producer Nate Wiggyhout has the story. And if Republicans won't do their part, 
Wisconsin's top Democrats have filed a lawsuit seeking to block enforcement of Wisconsin's 173-year-old abortion ban. The lawsuit, filed today by Governor Tony Evers and State Attorney General Josh Call, argues that a set of Republican abortion restrictions passed over the last several decades negate a much older law banning abortions in most circumstances. Wisconsin's first 1849 abortion law prohibited abortion only after the midpoint of pregnancy. But a rewrite of that law, codified in 1858, prohibits abortion at any stage of pregnancy. And that law is still on the books. It carries penalties for women seeking an abortion and to providers who perform an abortion. It does not provide exemptions for a pregnancy that is the product of rape or incest. The law permits an exception to protect the life of a mother, though, as numerous physicians have pointed out, that exception is vague and does not clarify how immediate death must be before a provider can act. But Call says that the 19th century law is too old to be valid since other state statutes surrounding abortion have been passed within the last few decades. Call says that the lawsuit is intended to clarify legal issues caused by the overturning of Roe. Safe and legal abortion has stopped in the state of Wisconsin. My office has begun receiving questions from sexual assault nurse examiners uh, who are wondering uh, whether they can still dispense emergency contraception, who are asking whether there's an exception under the 19th century abortion ban for cases of rape and incest. Uh, And the reality is that if that 19th century abortion ban remains in effect, Sexual assault victims in Wisconsin will be required under Wisconsin law to carry their rapist baby to term without getting medical intervention. A.G. Call says that several laws clarifying abortion were enacted in Wisconsin while Roe was the law of the land, so the 19th century law should be considered null and void. One such Wisconsin law mentioned in the lawsuit was passed in 1985, 12 years after Roe was decided. That law prohibits abortion after a medical professional finds that the fetus is viable to survive outside the womb, or around 23 weeks. Cole also argues that the law should be nullified because the ban has not been enforceable for the last 50 years. Um, We've also argued that the disuse of the old abortion ban, which has been unenforceable in Wisconsin since 1970, uh, and then on top of that was only uh, sporadically and, and disparately enforced prior to that, that that has also rendered the, the statute unenforceable under principles of uh, fairness and notice. The lawsuit points out that Wisconsin's 173-year-old abortion ban was specifically listed in the historic Roe v. Wade case, where the court ruled that law was unconstitutional. Call says that the lawsuit is not the only path Wisconsin should take to expanding abortion access. I think it's also really important that we continue to pursue legislation. Uh, The governor called the special session that was held just a week ago. The legislature gaveled in and gaveled out, uh, but that was before Dobbs. Now Dobbs has been issued, and we need our legislature to step up. Uh, and protect reproductive freedom in Wisconsin. The legal challenge issued earlier today names Call as well as the State Department of Safety and Professional Services, the State Medical Examining Board, and Chairperson of the Medical Examining Board, Sheldon Wasserman, as the plaintiffs. The defendants in the case are top legislative Republicans, including Senate Majority Leader Devin LeMayhew and Assembly Speaker Robin Voss.
The lawsuit follows after Republican lawmakers took no action during a special session to revise Wisconsin's abortion law. That session, called by Governor Evers, gaveled in and out in under a minute. Speaking at a press conference today, Governor Evers encouraged Wisconsin residents not to lose hope in abortion access in Wisconsin. Clearly, we have uh, some momentum on our side, and we're going to have to keep the pressure on. Keep talking about it. Keep, you know, getting... Getting, if, if you're represented by a Democrat that you know who believes as you do, uh, find a friend across the state that might have a Republican legislator. It, it is, it's, it's hand-to-hand combat right now. And the more pressure we can put on the other side on this issue, the sooner that we will get, uh, get some good results. Republican candidates for governor have already fired back at the legal challenge. Front-runner Rebecca Kleefish called the challenge an insult and anti-feminist, adding that, if elected, she would enforce Wisconsin's abortion ban. The lawsuit was filed today in Dane County and has been assigned to Judge Valerie Bailey Rin. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wickey-Hout. Madison is likely to see some storms rolling through tonight around 10 p.m. Along with this disturbance, a warm front will come through, raising temperatures which could cause a high heat index again. With more about what to expect, here's WORT weather producer Caitlin Day. Madison once again has favorable conditions for some severe thunderstorms tonight. Temperatures are currently sitting at around 81 degrees with only 35% humidity. Clouds are still present as we are seeing a cover of about 49%. Wind speeds are at 12 miles per hour coming from the southwest, and as we move further into the evening, temperatures will drop and the humidity will increase. The dew point and temperature will be sitting near each other, which makes it even more favorable to see these storms roll through tonight. A shortwave trough is making its way through, which is a disturbance in the mid or upper atmosphere that induces upward motion, which, if conditions are favorable, can contribute to the development of thunderstorms. The tail end of the shortwave with lower level frontal forcing is the reason why these storms are possible tonight. The storms are looking to reach us closer to bedtime rather than dinner time, so you may be waking up to a bit of rumbling around 10.30 p.m. as the storms move from the north to the south. The storm should weaken as we will be losing the heat of the day moving into the evening, so there shouldn't be a massive threat as far as storm damage, if any. As the front passes, cloud cover may linger into tomorrow morning. A warm air mass will make its way in and combined with gusty winds from the southwest. Humidity will be high tomorrow as a result of the storms, so be prepared to use extra hair gel and bring a hair tie with you. Tomorrow should be mostly sunny after the clouds make their way out of the area and we should be reaching a high of 86 degrees. Winds will be steady tomorrow and the UV index is looking to reach around 8 or 9, so don't forget your sunscreen. Tomorrow's grass pollen counts will be in the high categories. Upon returning from a day out, Be sure to shower and get some fresh clothes so you won't carry the pollen around with you longer than you want. Thursday and Friday look to have possible thunderstorms as a frontal boundary could occur. Thursday can reach 91 degrees and it is very possible that we will see a heat index reaching 96 degrees with high winds. Depending on how quickly the front can shift to the south, we may see storms linger for a bit longer on Friday. With your WORT weather report, I'm your producer, Caitlin Davis. It's now 6.18 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT.
Five months before Planned Parenthood stopped providing abortions in Wisconsin, given the state's 1849 ban, Kristen Lyerly, an obstetrics and gynecologist specialist in Green Bay, was providing medical abortion services in Sheboygan. Lyerly is an independent contractor with Planned Parenthood and does not represent the organization, but she does represent the American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, a national professional organization. Lyerly spoke with WORT reporter Madeline Plattenberg today about how her life has changed since the U.S. Supreme Court ended a constitutional right to abortion. Several days have passed since the decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, and Planned Parenthoods across the country have been scrambling to find abortion services for patients in need. In Wisconsin, this is no different, and OBGYNs are doing everything they can to provide help. I'm joined with Kristen Lyerly, an obstetrician and gynecologist from Green Bay, Wisconsin. Dr. Lyerly, thank you for talking with me. It's a pleasure to be here with you today. So I wanted to begin with what went through your mind when you first heard about the Roe v. Wade decision? Well, we all knew it was coming. Fortunately, there was the leak. So we had an idea of what the ruling was going to be. But when it actually appeared, it was such a gut punch. There's just no way to prepare for the knowledge that you as a woman in the United States of America in 2022 just lost a significant portion of your humanity. It's definitely a significant loss for a lot of women around the country. Mm-hmm. How are you feeling and doing right now? Um, I'm elated in a way and completely deflated in a way. Uh, I'm elated because there are so many people coming together, offering services, willing to speak out. We are organizing in a way that I've never seen before. But of course, I'm deflated because of the reason that we're here. I mean, yesterday was the first full day that we were, full weekday that we were taking care of patients since the ruling. And I've heard numerous examples already from across the state about patients who had complicated pregnancy issues that were being suboptimally managed because the physicians don't know what they can and cannot do. The law is very unclear. So for perspective, what have the last several days looked like for you and other OBGYNs at Planned Parenthood? Well, we stopped providing services before the ruling came at my clinic. I was doing medication abortions in Sheboygan. Um, There are only three Planned Parenthoods in Wisconsin that provide abortion care. And there's another uh, clinic in Milwaukee that also provides abortion care that's not affiliated with Planned Parenthood. So that's a total of four abortion providers here in the state. Um, We knew that because of some of the onerous laws that had already been passed by the legislature over the years, our patients were already struggling to get to a clinic, and then they had to endure not only a counseling session, but a 24-hour waiting period, and then come back for a second visit. That's a long process. And we, knowing that this ruling was coming, we wanted to provide our patients with the most information, the most resources, the most certainty that we could So we made a decision to stop providing abortion care on the 25th, um, which is the day after the ruling came. We were guessing. We didn't know when it was coming. So when it came a day early, unfortunately, 70 people were stranded in Milwaukee and Madison without ability to access the abortions that they were planning. And that in itself is just unbelievable. 70 people. But what we've seen since then is just, it's heartbreaking. 
What have you and other OBGYNs been doing to help women and others who are in need of an abortion and alleviating patients' stress during this time? Yeah, we've been trying to be as available as we can. Personally, I'm answering a lot of questions on social media. Um, we're trying to get the word out to the best that we can. And then we are organizing behind the scenes to determine what, there are a lot of complexities to taking care of pregnant women. So what are the things that we can define as life-saving? You may not be familiar with the law, but the law does not have exceptions for rape or incest. It does have an exception for the life of the mother, but that exception has to be determined by three physicians. And it's not, in 1849, the life of a mother was very different than the life of a mother in 2022. So we don't really know what that means. Is an ectopic pregnancy, a pregnancy that implants outside of the uterus, is that life-threatening? We think it is from a medical perspective, but would a legislator who doesn't know anything about medicine think it is? because they're the ones who are actually making the decisions. So we are trying to determine clinical guidance so that we can take care of our patients, and we are trying to get the word out to our patients about what they can and cannot do. This, these are desperate times for all of us. How can patients that cannot receive abortion care in their state get that help by traveling to a different state, and how are OBGYNs helping that process? Yeah, that's- That's a great question. So Illinois and Minnesota are border states that still provide abortion care, and they are bracing for an influx of patients from Wisconsin, and we are helping there as well. So I, for example, am going to be helping out in Minnesota by doing telemedicine abortions for women in Minnesota. Um, Some of my colleagues are going to Illinois to do both telemedicine and surgical abortions there. So that will help. Another thing that people are turning to is the internet, of course. These aren't the days of coat hangers and back alley abortions. These are the days of what are my options. People are looking to the internet to find plan C and other ways to receive medication for their abortion, as well as how to self-manage a surgical abortion, as well as other resources that they can tap into to be able to find the funds and the support to be able to travel. But all of these resources will not be able to sustain the volume of underserved people that we were taking care of when abortion was legal here in Wisconsin. And we do know that some of these abortions will not be safe. What are they saying to you in Illinois about this influx in people needing abortion care from several neighboring states, including Wisconsin? Yeah, they're bracing for it. They are um, they're bu- uh, buffing up other clinics that hadn't been providing abortion care. Legislatively, they are making changes. They are welcoming providers from other states. They are adding more staff. Um, they also are planning to accommodate trainees because... Remember, there are always residents, medical residents, who are learning how to provide abortion care. And those people now in 26 states may not be able to get the training that they need to be able to be obstetrician gynecologists in the future. So many of those people are going to be helping out in Illinois. So I think the influx, the volume is an opportunity for Illinois, but it's also a giant burden. And we don't really know exactly what this is going to look like. But I can assure you that we are working very closely with our partners in Illinois and Minnesota, both on a clinical level as well as on a legislative level, to enhance communication and make sure that we can do the best we can for our patients 
ultimately, that's the most important thing. And what kind of resources and networks would you recommend to people who need to terminate a pregnancy? My go-to is Planned Parenthood. If you go to the Planned Parenthood website, they can point people to a navigator, and the patient navigators are able to help you consider what your circumstances are and what is the next best step for you. So even if we can't provide the care for you, we can help you find your pathway. And should pregnant people be careful in who they confide in about having an abortion? I think they should. Um, here in Wisconsin right now, it's not like Texas where you can be turned in, where it's a vigilante justice, you can be turned in by anybody, but it's a difficult scenario. And I think trust right now, it, if you, I always tell my patients, if you are supported and you have people around you who understand you and get what you're going through, you are going to make it through this procedure and this time in your life and you're going to look back and, and it's all going to fit into place. But if you are not surrounded by people you trust and this doesn't seem natural and comfortable to you, it could be an entirely different situation. Given the political environment, given how divisive this situation is and how, for whatever reason, it's not considered a medical problem, but it's a political problem, I think it's very careful or it's very necessary that people are careful about who they talk to and that they find a trusted provider. And Planned Parenthood can help with that as well. Definitely. Sport during these difficult times is definitely necessary for women and anyone who is pregnant right now. Any final thoughts or comments? I am just so grateful for your time today, for the outpouring of support, people who are willing to use their voices. I live in Green Bay, and Green Bay is a very conservative town. It's hard for us to talk openly about these difficult questions, but these are conversations we have to have. I've been talking with Kristen Lyerly, an obstetrician and gynecologist from Green Bay, Wisconsin, about how OBGYNs in Wisconsin are scrambling. Dr. Lyerly, thank you for talking with me. It's been a pleasure. The time is now 6.33 and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful here with Christian Knutson. Thanks for joining us. It's Pride Month, a time of celebration as well as reflection on the progress made in LGBTQ rights. Here in Wisconsin, we became the first state to pass one important piece of legislation that helped pave the way for LGBTQ rights across the country. Earlier today, WRT producer Nate Buggyhout spoke with former state lawmaker David Clarenbach about the progress of LGBTQ rights in Wisconsin and the experiences he faced as a gay man in the 1970s. Today is the 53rd anniversary of the Stonewall Riots, a major turning point in LGBTQ rights here in America. And this year is also the 40th anniversary of Wisconsin becoming the first state to ban employment and housing discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Joining me today is David Clarenbach, former State Assembly Speaker pro tempore and author of that bill. David, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me here today. I'm glad to speak with you. 
So just to start things off here, looking back, it was 40 years ago now that you authored that legislation banning discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation. Uh, Just to start off, what made you want to go and write that sort of first of its kind legislation to begin with? You know, what made you go and say enough is enough? Well, I was in high school when Stonewall took place. I'm not sure anyone was really aware that it had taken place, but I knew I was gay. And uh, as I was maturing and when I was graduating from high school, I decided that my energies would be devoted to electoral politics. And I got elected and ended up serving for 20 some years in elected office. It was clear that one of the cutting edge issues of the time, besides Vietnam War and the broader civil rights struggles of the 60s, was gay and lesbian civil rights. And so from the very beginning, uh, some 50 years ago, when I sought elected office, I made sure that anti-discrimination based on sexual orientation was part of my platform. And so our work in the state legislature moved from that basis, and there was a growing gay civil rights movement in Wisconsin and across the country. So it was a natural extension of of my personal life and uh, the constituencies that I represented. And then that bill that you wrote, or that piece of legislation, I should say, that was a bipartisan piece of legislation as well. And sort of looking at today's uh, Wisconsin legislator, not something you see all too common. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Did you did you run into any issue trying to get bipartisan support for the bill? It was crucial that we had bipartisan support for the gay civil rights bill in the late 70s and early 80s. And we were able to get Republican votes in both houses of the legislature. In fact, Republican votes provided the margin of victory in both the state assembly and the state Senate. And the bill was signed into law by a Republican governor. So that gave political cover for a lot of people who ended up voting for the bill, who would, under normal circumstances, not want to risk their political future on a an issue as exotic as, as gay rights, if you give them political cover and the cover we provided with the religious support we were able to generate, uh, that allowed members of the legislature from both parties to vote for uh, civil rights for gays and lesbians. And you mentioned uh, religious support there for this uh, piece of legislation. Can you tell me a bit about that? We don't really think of that sort of thing, those things going hand in hand all too often. This was the era of the uh, so-called moral majority, and we were successful in isolating the moral majority as the lunatic fringe that they are. Uh, We were able, over a period of eight years, to build a base of support from the faith community, the Protestant religions, uh, even the Wisconsin Baptist Convention uh, adopted a resolution in favor of our gay civil rights law. Uh, the, um, the, the Jewish uh, Federation, of course, was very strongly in favor of our efforts. But perhaps most surprisingly, the Catholic Church supported gay civil rights in Wisconsin because we framed the question not at least in the religious context, whether gay was good or bad or to be encouraged or discouraged or whether it was sinful or not sinful. The question that we posed to the 
faith community was whether bigotry and discrimination could be tolerated against any group in our society. And when that's the question, the answer is universally no, it cannot be tolerated. And that was the basis upon which we got the bill passed and signed into law. And so now looking back, it was 40 years ago this year, looking then and sort of looking now, what sort of similarities and then from there, what sort of what sort of radical differences do you see in LGBT rights here in Wisconsin? What 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 was similar then and now and what was different from then and now? Well, it's an entirely different uh, political environment today, much more divisive, much less civil, and much less uh, bipartisan in any respects today. I think that's obvious to anyone. The challenge that we have today is that the struggles are not over. We may have passed a gay rights law 40 years ago, and it was an almost another decade before the second state enacted its civil rights protections based on sexual orientation. But still today, Wisconsin statutes, for instance, don't mention the transgender community specifically. And that is an omission that we shamefully neglected 40 and 50 years ago because it wasn't on the agenda. We were ignorant at that time. And with the U.S. Supreme Court decision uh, and uh, Justice Thomas's and others raising the question of whether same-sex marriage should be reconsidered, uh, since they did that to abortion rights, why not to same-sex marriage, uh, perhaps contraceptives, uh, other issues that the Supreme Court had resolved, or at least we had felt that they were resolved, I think are very much in danger today. So it's important, I think, for all people who are concerned about privacy, civil rights, and civil liberties to be vigilant and politically active today, just as they were 40 and 50 years ago. And now looking back, one last thing for you here. So you were a gay man holding a high-ranking state office here in Wisconsin in the 70s and 80s. Can you sort of just talk to me a little bit about that? What was that like for you? I was elected at a time where uh, openly gay and lesbian elected officials really didn't exist around the country. I mean, the, uh, the, the, I was elected to the County Board of Supervisors less than three years after Stonewall took place. So I became an elected official at a time when I was developing my sexuality personally. And it flowed naturally that Every member of the legislature knew that I was gay. Every member of the press corps knew that I was gay, and it was never an issue. That's in stark contrast, perhaps, to today's environment, where there might have been a more aggressive intrusion into the private lives of uh, elected officials and politicians. And David, we're sort of running up against the clock here. Do you have just any final thoughts of anything that you'd like to share with me, anything that I didn't quite get to that you wanted to talk about? Well, it is rare that any state is able to accomplish a reform that is truly consequential. And Wisconsin was not only the first state to pass a gay rights law, but we set the template, uh, the, the, the uh, strategies that were successful in the other states that followed. Yet today, still a majority of the states fail to have uh, statutory prohibitions against discrimination based on sexual orientation. And that's a, a status that we should not be satisfied with.
I've been talking with David Clarenbach, former state assembly speaker pro tempore and author of the landmark bill banning discrimination on sexual orientation here in Wisconsin, which recently passed its 40th anniversary. David, thank you so much for coming on and talking with me today. Thank you. No, it's not time for baseball. It's tonight's Wildlife Weekly. Feature contributor Jackie Sandberg shares her love for Baltimore Orioles and how the birds make themselves at home in Wisconsin. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment and today I want to talk about one of my favorite birds of all time, the Baltimore Oriole. And yes, I know that there are more Orioles in Wisconsin than just the Baltimore, but they are just an iconic, amazing species that we see every year in the migratory periods because they are bright orange and loud and raucous. And we have babies right now at the Wildlife Center. And so I know, you know, we've talked a little bit about them before in other segments, but it's something that I like to revisit because we only see a couple of them every year when they come into rehabilitation. And normally we don't find ourselves with adults. We find ourselves with the babies. We have three little hatchlings in care right now that actually have kind of graduated to the fledgling stage just this week. So. They are finally large enough that they were able to be moved outside and they are enjoying exploring their enclosure. And it's probably the best thing that I've ever gotten to experience as a rehabilitator, getting to work with these birds, is getting to design the enclosure to be specific for Orioles because they are frugivorous. So frugivores, as you might have heard, they eat primarily fruit and they are very much attracted to things that are colorful and bright. And so you know that Baltimore Orioles themselves are a very bright yellow to orangey color uh, if you've ever seen them at your feeders and if you haven't definitely uh, highly recommend looking up some pictures of them so you can see what they look like because they're pretty amazing and so they are hanging out in our enclosures right now and the first day that they're in those enclosures they're kind of shell-shocked until they see all of the fruit that is surrounding them which means it's bright oranges. So we buy oranges from the grocery store. I know that seems a little strange, but that's what they're going to be used to if they're going to migrate a lot further south than we are here in our area of North America. So in the tropics, that's what they're going to be eating. And they are really preferential to the ripe, very dark fruits, which means it's going to be something like mulberries, for example, um, cherries, and then also grapes. They don't really like to eat things that don't have a lot of color. So like green grapes or yellow cherries. So anything that has not been ripened yet, they're not really very attracted to. So these little guys, we have put orange slices all over the different branches and enrichment that they have. And it is hilarious to see them rummaging around in the leaves and the trees and picking at the oranges, picking at the berries. We like to do a lot of like raspberries and blackberries also in our enclosures. And it's almost like they kind of hide behind the leaves with their, their personalities. They're just like chirping to each other, vocalizing, and then excitedly picking at the bark and at the leaves. And then they find an orange and then they just ravage the oranges. So that's part of the reason I love them is just because they are just so, so fun to watch in their natural environment. But yes, uh, you know, if you ever put fruits out at your 
your feeders in the fall and the springtime, you might be attracting your Orioles. You might see them at different colors throughout their developmental period. So young Baltimore Orioles, usually you can't even tell if they are male and female until they get into their second year of life. And that's because they're very drab when they're first born. So ours are definitely more of a pale yellow color. And they will start molting into bright orange plumage if they're males in the fall of their second year. And they're a really cool species to catch in like mist nets because I also banned birds, which is fun. And to see that transition of color when you've got a couple of bright orange feathers coming in and they contrast to the yellowish feathers, they're just incredibly beautiful up, up close. They also have really long and narrow beaks and a long tongue that really like very expertly goes to, it's like they're, they're tasting, sampling, or flavoring the fruits. I like to think of Baltimore Orioles as like the wine tasters of the birds. I, I don't know why, but it's just because they're just, they're very picky. They have their favorites. There's, they like the fruits and the flavors. Anyway, so they're, like I said, they're super fun. Not all birds have this type of adaptation to be able to eat fruits. So there are some birds that are frugivorous um, and it's not very many. And I always think of Orioles as being that type of, of bird and birds digest fruit. And it's, it's an adaptation that has been, you know, something that takes a long time, you know, maybe over evolutionary periods, but, you know, some of it might have been co-evolved with plants. So usually frugivorous birds are actually the ones that help disperse seeds of different fruits, because if you have something like a fruit eating mammal species, they're actually going to digest and eat those seeds versus the frugivorous birds, which will disperse them. So maybe that is part of the reason that it has evolved in birds like Orioles, also because of their location and where fruits are being grown or where they naturally are, you know, easily accessible again, which is going to be in the tropical areas. And usually their timing is related to when the fruits are ripe. So with their migration, they might be coming here when they know that the fruit is ready to eat. And so like, if I think of the fall migrants, which, you know, Orioles definitely are one of those, but you know, you'll see thrushes, catbirds, there's other sorts of birds that eat fruit, like the tanagers, even some warblers, actually, there's some specific ones that like bird, uh, like really specific types of fruits. So they will be there and they'll be coming through for species of plants that are at the peak of fruiting. So the adaptation is different. So you've got like your seed eaters, which I've talked about before in other segments where the gizzard, one of the major organs for digestion in birds is is you know, really spending a lot of time grinding up the seeds so that they can eventually break them open and then get the energy from them. Um, it's the opposite in a lot of our frugivore species. So they actually have less musculature in the gizzard and they have shorter intestines. And so if they're feeding on mostly fruit, it just passes through the gut really, really quickly. And instead of taking like hours and hours to digest and be able to get that energy, it's very, very fast. And so that's also another reason that those seeds might pass through the digestive tract to land into the the soil and then hopefully that is still continuing on to uh, you know sprout another plant and so when they're migrating in those different periods they're eating the fruit they're dispersing the seeds which might be part of the natural life cycle of that plant depending on what timing that plant needs to stay you know underneath the soil or hibernating or to germination so it's just kind of neat that it it is all 
very dependent on each other. So it's a very um, beneficial or mutualistic relationship with some of our frugospore species like the Orioles and then also the others that I mentioned. So some trees, some shrubs, etc. It's actually about 300 different species of plants that depend on birds like Orioles for seed dispersal. So I think that that is really, really neat. I think that mutualistic relationship between birds and plants and the adaptations that Orioles have made to be able to eat all these beautiful fruits that probably taste really great, uh, make them an incredible bird to highlight and to talk about. So we are looking forward to seeing these little Orioles grow up in our rehabilitation center and hopefully thrive and do very well um, so that they can be released by the time that the fall migration happens and that they can go back with their flocks so that they will be migrating to very many beautiful tropical places. Uh, they go a pretty far distance. So we're, we're talking all the way through Central America and into the northern part of South America at times. They will be migrating through in the southern states. So if you're going south for the winter and you might be uh, heading with the Baltimore Orioles, definitely keep an eye out for them or listen for them because they're very loud. Awesome. Well, that was our segment today talking about Baltimore Orioles, but then also frugivorous birds and how they do their seed dispersals. Thanks for listening here on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly. And if you have any questions, give us a call at 608-287-3235. Thanks for listening. It's now 6.51 p.m. and you're listening to the live local news on WORT. How are we able to learn so much about galaxies that are far, far away? By studying the universe's smallest particles, of course. On this week's Radio Astronomy feature contributor, Roke Haberger, explores how quantum mechanics can teach us about the cosmos. Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Roar Kabeger, and today I'll help you tie together two things that seem very different, quantum mechanics and galaxies. With the James Webb Space Telescope flying through tests of its various instruments, we will soon learn a ton about galaxies. In preparation for those new observations, it is important to know how we see a galaxy. Well, it's simple, right? We see it like we see anything else, with light. There are electromagnetic waves streaming through the universe from each galaxy in every direction. Telescopes are just big light buckets meant to pick up as much of that light as possible. That light not only tells us where a galaxy is in the sky, but tells us about what is in the galaxy. Because something, a star, gas, accretion disks, in the galaxy had to emit the light. 
But once you start thinking about the interaction of light and matter, you need to start considering quantum mechanics. The actual meaning of the word quantum comes from quantized, because the energy levels of electrons in an atom fall into discrete levels. For example, a hydrogen atom has five energy levels. The lowest energy level is an electron with an energy of negative 13.6 electron volts. Quick note, electron volts, or EV, is a unit of energy, like a joule, an erg, a calorie, or a kilowatt hour. We could talk in any unit system, but electron volts work really well when talking about individual electrons in an atom. The other energy levels of hydrogen are negative 3.4 electrovolts, negative 1.51 electron volts, negative 0.85 electron volts, and negative 0.64 electron volts. These levels mean no electron tied to a proton forming a hydrogen atom will have an energy of, say, negative 5 electrovolts. That is not an available energy level. The energy levels are the amount of energy needed to break the connection between the proton and the electron in the atom. If we throw a packet of light, called a photon, at a hydrogen atom whose electron is in the ground state with an energy of negative 13.6 electrovolts, then a couple of things could happen. First, if the photon has an energy of 10.2 electrovolts, then the electron will jump to the first excited state of negative 3.4. If the photon only had 10 electron volts of energy, then the electron would be unaffected. We can calculate the other possible photon energies using the other energy levels. The process I just described is absorption of a photon. The inverse process is called emission, and it produces a photon. This can happen when an electron joins with a proton to make a neutral hydrogen atom, or when an electron in a higher energy level of hydrogen moves to a lower energy level. Either of those processes emits a photon, and those photons are often the same ones we observe with our telescopes. Instead of piling every photon together, astronomers often use a spectrograph to split the photons collected by a telescope into their wavelength, frequency, or energy. A photon with an energy of 10.2 electron volts has a wavelength of 1216 angstroms, 1216. When looking at a spectrum from a source in space, astronomers often see a spike at 1216 angstroms. This spike in the spectrum is called an emission line, and that 1216 angstrom spike is known as the Lyman alpha line. Alpha, because it's the highest wavelength a hydrogen atom can emit, and Lyman is for Theodore Lyman who discovered the line. But in space, we get to see things we don't normally see. For example, astronomers who study galaxies with active supermassive black holes will look at emission lines from nitrogen, oxygen, neon, sulfur, and iron. By comparing the intensity of each of these emission lines, we can estimate the temperature of a galaxy. But these individual emission lines that make up a spectrum, these spikes, only appear because of the quantized energy levels of electrons in atoms. In the future, when the James Webb Space Telescope starts making mind-blowing discoveries with instruments like the near-infrared spectrograph, just remember it is possible because some electrons in those faraway galaxies were bouncing up and down between discrete 
quantized energy levels. I hope you have a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Nate Carlin. Your reporter tonight was Madeline Plattenberg. Your weather producer was Caitlin Davis. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg and the Radio Astronomy crew. Dave Lawrenson engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Sholly Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Stay up to date with WORT's local news podcast. Subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever else you get your podcasts. Up next is Spanish language news with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>